The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hello, my name is Mac Alawadi, and I'm going to be reading the scripture um, today from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3. Uh, be reading from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 16. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humbled mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or on the contrary, bless, for to this, you were called, you were called that you may obtain blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer For the righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with goodness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. an old jacket, it's okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul Lim, and I serve here as the scholar in uh, residence for the last five years or so. I'm wearing a mask because what I was going to do was I was going to wear this mask and another one that says Trump 2020, and after that, Biden 2020, and after that, was going to have Jesus. But I couldn't afford to buy all those masks at that time, so I just explained to you what I was going to do. So... So I was wearing at least a mask in the beginning. So, um, so um, in 2016, almost uh, four years ago, uh, I began serving at Christ Press as a scholar in residence in January 2016, and I preached a sermon right after the election day. 
And after the first service, somebody came up and said, you know what, your sermon today was better than four years ago. So I took great comfort in that. Um, you know, when I heard that we we're going to be doing this series on politics and I was going to be kicking it off, I said, bring it on, no problem, praise Jesus. So, uh, but I really uh, realized that it ain't about me, it is all about the Lord. So if it is okay, let's pray together as we begin our series on politics. Gracious God and glorious Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll be with us and may the words of my mouth and reflection of meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our savior. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so our sermon today is based on um, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 16, and the title is Grace and Truth in a Partisan Age. So we're living in a truly polarized and partisan age. So as I was preparing this sermon, I was watching this movie clip, which has a short speech, and this has been ranked as the number two movie speech according to the Cinemaholic. I don't know what the website is, but I looked up. And so this uh, movie is called A Few Good Men. You might remember that movie. And Tom Cruise plays the role of a Navy JAG lawyer, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey. And he's trying to uh, get Colonel Jessup, uh, played by Jack Nicholson, sufficiently provoke him to lose his temper and cool. You might remember that particular scene. So here how it goes. Caffey says, Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? Judge, Judge Randolph says, you don't have to answer that question. Colonel Jessup says, I will answer that question. And you want answers? Caffey says, yes, I think I'm entitled to it. And Colonel Jessup says, you want answers? And Caffey says, I want the truth. To which Colonel Jessup answers by saying, you can't handle the truth. Some of you may remember that famous line. I saw you, some of you like repeating it with me. You can't handle the truth. I feel that way a lot. I'm too liberal for my conservative friends and to my conservative friends, I'm too liberal and, too con and way too conservative for my liberal friends. So in this sermon, you will not find out who I voted for this week, nor will it afford me a platform to decry against the evils or the benefits of the potential reversal of whatever sort, Roe v. Wade, repeal of Affordable Care Act, Second Amendment, death penalty, etc. If you ask me in person, I'd be happy to tell you what I think about all of these, but remember, you can't handle the truth. So as I was preparing this sermon, I was also listening to the following songs on my playlist. I was listening and watching music videos. The first one, most recent added to my list, is Dolly Parton. She has a song called Coat of Many Colors. It's a fabulous song. I, I was like, why didn't I know this song until like two nights ago, right? It's about her, I think, growing up poor in East Tennessee, not having enough money to afford a coat, so her mother had to sew from a patch of rags. It's actually about bullying and being ridiculed because of that coat and about not giving up, about inspirations from biblical story of Joseph, etc. These songs have kind of really been on my mind because I was thinking about the demographic of, you know, us here in this church and much beyond who will be participating in this electoral process. The second song is by Metallica. It's a song called Hero of the Day. And by the way, parents, I mean, this is, I'm 53 years old. I'm listening to these because one parent said to me, you know, you talk about these songs that I don't encourage my kids to listen to, so pardon me for that in advance. But this song is actually one of my favorite songs because it is about 
a guy, so about a war hero back from the ravaging effects of a tour, who is now suffering from PTSD and not being able to uh, get on with his life and who struggles with alcohol. Snapshot of those who might have been called as deplorables by the last Democratic presidential candidate, perhaps. The third, third song on my list is by a Pulitzer Prize-winning hip-hop artist, Kendrick Lamar. It is called DNA. Just as the entire album, D-A-M-N, explores the tension between pride and humility, love and lust, and fear and faith, as music critic Sheldon Pierce describes it. Lamar sings, I know murder, convictions, burners, boosters, burglars, ballers, dead, redemption, scholars, fathers, dead with kids. And here's my favorite line of the whole song. I wish I had, I was fed forgiveness. I wish I was fed forgiveness. Life on the other side of the tracks. The fourth song is another rap song, this time by Public Enemy, called Don't Believe the Hype. If you're from the 80s like me, you probably remember that song. With that catchy refrain, don't, 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 don't believe the hype, it has been a powerful reminder for me to not just embrace what my favorite news channel says. There's more truth than just Fox News or CNN, MSNBC or PBS NewsHour, etc. The last song that I listen to a lot these days is by Jars of Clay. It's called I'll Fly Away. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. If you haven't listened to it, I want to encourage you most emphatically to listen to it, which is a poignant reminder for me that all our strivings, political, cultural, sexual, academic, social, relational, will have their expiration dates. Each song, in its own way, point me to the need for the gospel and our collective need for Jesus as each song epitomizes our own group's aspirations as well as anxieties, fears, as well as hopes. So as we get to an exposition of today's text, here are some words and phrases we must bear in mind. First, this word, aliens. Second, word, minority. Third phrase, despised religion. We make some conceptual failures and commit categorical mistakes in assuming that our contemporary experiences of Christianity must have been what the first century Christians must have experienced. So think aliens, minority, and despised religion. So the three points of today's message are as follows, and we'll unpack them accordingly. First point is this, God calls us to be a moral minority. Number two, God calls us to be a hopeful minority. Number three, God calls us to Jesus, the ultimate political minority and a friend of Mephibosheth. So moral minority, hopeful minority, Jesus the political minority will be the batting order of our conversation today. Today's text is the third chapter of the first letter that Peter wrote to this emerging group of Jesus followers, whom he calls exiles. Exiles are scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they are exiles, and as such, Peter reminded them that they were aliens and exiles in this world. You are home, but you're not exactly home. There is going to be an evident tension in your life journey. And yet, that wasn't all there was to their identity. There were also, these Jesus followers were a chosen people, they were a royal priesthood, they were a holy nation, 
and they were a, they were God's special possession. But overall, they were not to count their blessings in earthly or this worldly terms alone. Most of the Christians were political outsiders during this time period and culturally despised and marginalized group. Most of us, including me, starting with me, want to be insiders rather than outsiders and would want to be respected and be power brokers rather than despised and broken down by power. So the first point is this, God calls us to be moral minority. My guess is that most of us will have a hard time with the word minority and don't like the word minority since it is likely that you've not been one and let's face it, even if those of us who are minorities of whatever sort don't much like being a minority. You don't want to be left out, you don't want to be left alone. And yet, God calls the followers of Jesus in the first century and also by extension, us as well in the 21st century to be a moral minority. What does that mean? Here's what I think. Look with me in verse 9. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called. This was not the way that Rome achieved its famous Pax Romana, Roman peace. It was a peace that was preceded by war and warmongering. It was not achieved by turning the other cheek as Jesus had taught. It was not done by giving food to one's enemies as the Apostle Paul had taught. While I'm not suggesting that Roman cultural norms are nothing but ruthless and vindictive collection of dog-eat-dog world, I am nonetheless suggesting that there was something about this moral minority report that got the attention of the watching world. Verses 13 and 14 also continue conveying the sad social political reality of early Christians in the first century. Peter says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good in verse 13? Well, the answer to the question was a lot of people, actually. He answers that in verse 14. If you want to kind of take a look at it, do what I would call a sort of commonsensical approach to interpreting this text. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So let's stop right there. Peter says, do not fear their threats. Why? Because there were threats. Peter says, do not be frightened because their cause is to be frightened. So there were threats and there were frightening prospects of what, what would follow if you continue to insist on claiming that Jesus is Lord, which meant that Caesar was not the ultimate Lord. So here is what it is. So in the first century context, when you say that Jesus is Lord, that means Christos is curious. That means that Jesus is the, he is the Lord of all things. But in the Roman religious kind of background, to claim that would be tantamount to saying that Caesar is not Lord because their belief structure says Caesar is Lord. So it is a political statement of a very, very interesting kind. To claim the Lordship of Jesus meant more than anything else that there was a new ethic of neighborly love. They took very seriously this question, who is my neighbor? Who is included in the word we, as Brandy Kellett of our congregation has asked often for all our benefits? So friends and beloved, I want to remind us of this crucial fact. We're living in a, in a time when we talk a lot about our identities. It is a time of identity politics and so on. 
can I remind all of us that the most important identity for all of us, first and foremost, is that we are Christians. You're a Christian first before you're an American. Your identity and belonging to Jesus transcends any other belongings and any other group identities. To the extent that we forget that and put American first and Christian second, we end up bastardizing the gospel and using religion as a way to serve our base political ends of a Nicene will to power struggle. The government is not church and one should not be seeking some kind of salvific solution from the government. One of the letters from the second century was written by a certain mathetist, which in Greek means literally a disciple, to Diognetus, someone that we don't know very much about. And this is a beautiful example of a defense of the lifestyle and the culture of Christians who are misunderstood, reviled, and ridiculed. This is what it says about the morals of early Christians. The letter writes, reads, they marry, these Christians marry, as do all others. They beget children, have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share meals, but not spouses. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all people, yet are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. Moral minority continued into the second century and beyond. God calls us to be part of the moral minority. I could get off the script and editorialize a little bit about what I think about moral minority and moral majority. I will not go there today. So that leads me to the second point. God calls us to be a hopeful minority. Hopeful minority. Let's look at verse 15. Peter writes, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Reason for the hope within our own hearts. What hope do we have? What hope did they have? Peter says very clearly, be prepared to give the answer to everyone who asks you, why do you have that kind of hope? Professor Larry Hurtado taught New Testament at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland for a long time, and he has a book that has influenced my understanding of early Christian belief and culture profoundly. It is called, I love the title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? With a question mark. You know what? As a scholar, I love books that when you read the title, it tells you everything about the book, right? Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? And he answers that question in his book. Not a long book, but really powerful and, and really great insights are there. One of the things that differentiated, according to Professor Hurtado, Christians from their Roman neighbors and pagan neighbors was what, what one can call strange hope. Strange hope. For the early Christians, their hope was not in this world. For many of them, their, their life was one of hardship, one of disregard, one of derision, one of denial. In plain middle school language, their life sucked, earthly speaking. And yet, they were going to be okay 
because that wasn't the measure of a person. That wasn't the measure of a success or failure or faithfulness or fidelity. For them, there is something beyond that that really helped them, and there is a hope beyond this world. Hope in this world, yes, because you're in with the Lord, but there is something beyond that strange hope. So the epistle of Diognetus continues to extol the strange hope of the Christians, or to put differently, how their horizon of life went beyond this world, and it is putatively, with all of its putatively wonderful trappings. The letter writes, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as travelers. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. I love this expression. I love it. It says you're in this world, but you're not of the world. You're in this, you know, and you call this your own, own native hometown and country, yes, but that's your passing through. And there is a sense of strange hope that was really kind of redolent of this kind of early Christian hope that I hope that we get it as well. In a similar way, N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, excoriates many Christians, especially in the West, to orient our thinking about our version and vision of the good life by what the New Testament has to say about their version and vision of the good life. Let me confess something here, friends. Every time I prepare a sermon, every time I read scriptures, what happens is a major collision course, collision between what I, Paul Lim, think about the good life, my version and vision of the good life, and what the New Testament, what Jesus has to say about the good life are more often than not in a major collision course. That means I need to be decentered from my own kind of, you know, uh, own preoccupations about the good life here and now and be recentered in Jesus Christ. The church was following her Lord who was crucified, which means, means he was a wrongfully convicted and executed criminal as far as Roman authorities were concerned. Let me say that again. Jesus was a wrongfully convicted and executed criminal as far as Rome was concerned then it was completely understandable, is it not, that they, the early followers of Jesus, could not put all their eggs of hopes in this basket of this world and in this life alone. And he right continues that the church did its best service to the world as she appeared vulnerable and suffering and yet praising and praying, misunderstood and misjudged, and yet vindicated and celebrating and through it all, always bearing in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. See, friends, our gracious Lord, who gave the first century Christians the irrepressible hope, decenters from our own modern American mythical notions about God and the good life, and recenters us in Jesus Christ. For many of us, including me, God is our weekly cleaning crew chief. We need God so that we can have all our earthly desires met. We want our God to rubber stamp our desires and plans and aspirations, politics included. To the extent our God serves our purposes, we'll continue to serve God and worship God. Both Blaise Pascal and Jonathan Edwards said, that is the height of human idiocy and idolatry. To have a God that will meet all of our needs and to that extent, we will worship that God. Let me ask this, friends. Do you think God really cares about who wins the World Series? 
when I asked this question, somebody texted me and said, yes, he does. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> Is God more glorified if the Dodgers wins or the Rays wins? Does God care about who wins the next Women's World Cup soccer? Team USA, Team China, Team Netherlands, Team Nigeria, does God really care? Then more importantly, does God care about who wins the presidential election? Is God more glorified if Biden wins or if Trump wins? Rather than preoccupy our minds with that, let's remind ourselves that God calls us to be a hopeful minority. Where is your hope anchored? That anchoring question is a very important one. You see, friends, I'm not advocating for a for a Amish mindset of Christian political engagement. Some of you may be familiar with the birth of the Baptist movement. So in the 16th century with the Reformation, there was a group of uh, more radical Christians called the Anabaptists. They felt that to be in this world was so hopelessly dangerous and corrupting so that they said, you know, we need to come out and be separate. So they decided that we're going to be completely separate. We're not going to use the world's kind of, you know, convenient kind of inventions. So no electricity, no cars, and we're going to use horse and buggy, and we're going to use candles and everything else. And because by doing so, and only by doing so, will we keep our purity and unity and liberty of conscience. And some have criticized that. So, you know, as a Calvinist, I would say, as a Reformed Christian, I would say, you know, God, every inch of this planet Earth belongs to Christ. Thus, we should be involved in the political engagement. But what I have found is that sometimes we have ridiculed and kind of criticized the Anabaptist model of disengagement. But the other extreme is where we are now. We feel like only if we win this political battle, then the kingdom of God is entered in or ushered in. That leads me to the final point. God calls us to follow Jesus, the ultimate political minority, who was also a friend of Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Mephibosheth, we'll talk about him a little bit. Let's remember what Jesus said about the kingdom of this world and his own identity as king, right? So think about this. Jesus had this perfect opportunity to address the Roman authority figure. He's, he was standing before Pontius Pilate. He was... He was directly asked this question, are you the king of the Jews in John 18, 33? His answer was as concise as it was cryptic. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would, have, would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my, now my kingdom is from another world. Right? My kingdom is not of this world, it's from another world. In Matthew 26, we read of this crazy scene of the arrest of Jesus. So let me, let, let's all go there in our minds. And Peter is now out of his kind of impetuous desire to defend the honor of his teacher and master and rabbi. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Do you remember that story? It's actually blood dripping and a guy shrieking and crying with pain. It's a hot mess. And Jesus, what would he say? He actually puts a year of the servant back in the middle of all that commotion. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, put your sword back into his place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And he goes, do you not think I cannot, I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me, send me more than 12 legions of angels to destroy you all, pulverize this whole situation. And yet, earthly retribution and angelic demol demolition were not what Jesus had envisioned. 
Third aspect of his idea of the kingdom. After his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus is asked this question and Luke, the writer of Acts, recorded, records it in chapter 1, verse 6. So let's go to that particular scene in our mind, shall we? So we're all follow, followers of Jesus. We thought that our cause was over because he died. He died a death of an executed criminal. So we thought like we're losers, we're done. And yet three days later, he rose again from the dead. We're super excited. And you know what else? Unlike us here right now in America, they, the early followers of Jesus, had no political independence. They were actually a loser country compared to Rome. And now they're really, really pumped. Hey, our Lord and our master, he's risen again from the dead. What could be worse than death? And he beat it. He beat the hell out of death. So he's going to beat the heck out of Rome. What's he going to be, Lord? They're super excited. So in Acts 1.6, it says, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Watch that. Did you hear that? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That is absolutely predictable and understandable quest and question. It's not just for Simon the Zealot. Every daughter and son of Israel, they were yearning for, pining for that independence and restoration of the glory of Zion. And what does Jesus say? He says, it is not for you to know the time nor the date the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to go conquer Spain and conquer Rome and conquer North Africa and conquer Asia? Is that what he said? No, I'm reading from my own version. That's not what it says. In Acts 1.6, it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If Christians had taken this seriously, that his kingdom was not of this world, that they were going to really demonstrate the power of the kingdom by being martyrs, witnesses, witnessing to the resurrection glory, witnessing to the fact that God sides with, with those who are disenfranchised and totally powerless. If Christians had taken this more seriously, then we will not have had the tragedy of mixing the empire with evangelium, which is the word for good news, the method of the church's expansion would have matched the message of Jesus, the ultimate political minority. I mentioned this earlier, and I think it's worth repeating. Some of you know about the Innocence Project, which seeks to exonerate individuals who are wrongfully convicted. And a couple of dear friends of mine are involved with it very, very deeply. I had an occasion to think about it this week because I had a special event this past week and thought about Jesus as the wrongfully convicted one who was executed for it. Now, we tend to sanitize that truth and beautify that truth and kind of want to not think about it like that. We have, uh, we don't have cross, right? We have crosses somewhere in a, right there. And, and when we see that, we don't think of it as some kind of equivalent of a lethal injection or electric chair. We don't want to think it like that. But that's exactly what it is. If you had a first century Roman come to our church today and were to look at these crosses, they would say, are you freaking out of your mind? What are you doing? That's a sign of shame and death and horrendous kind of, you know, powerful display of Rome saying, you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to you. So Jesus, the ultimate political minority, he stood before Pontius Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world. When he was resurrected, he told his followers, you know what, you're going to receive power, all right, but that power is going to empower you so that you can be my witnesses to the ends of the world. Talk about the ultimate loser of history, yet God vindicated him. So this same God calls us to follow Jesus, 
who was a friend of Mephibosheth. You might astutely say, Paul, you're being totally anachronistic when you say that Jesus was a friend of whatever his name is, Mephibosheth, M-man, Mephi-man, or whatever. Mephibosheth shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He was King Saul's grandson, Jonathan's own son. But due to Jonathan's unfortunate premature death, Mephibosheth has been left as an orphan, and worse yet, he was a crippled individual. And the writer of 2 Samuel says that he was lame in both feet. When I read that, when I first read that passage as a young Christian, it really kind of blew me away. So he was lame not just in one foot, in both feet. And in NASA's societal context, it was deemed to be someone that did not really receive much attention or much care, let alone love. And so it is understandable, natural, that when Mephibosheth meets David, whom his grandpa Saul really hated, his natural comment would be, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Man, it's a powerful expression, isn't it? Why would you bother with a dead dog like me? David asked. And then David says, not so fast. You're not a dead dog. You're actually the son of my beloved friend, Jonathan. And he says, you will dine at my table all the days of your life, just like my own sons, David said. You see, friends, we are all like Mephibosheth. And to the extent that Jesus was the son of David, as well as the Lord of David, we see that Jesus was, figuratively speaking, a friend of Mephibosheth. Where am I going with all this, you might ask. Here's where I'm going. Jesus' radical identification with the losers of history, such as Mephibosheth, indeed with all of us, is the gospel. The good news is that Jesus calls us to follow him and be that message. God did not leave us alone in our misery or in our independence. God says, you need me. You may not know that you need me, but I'm going to come and be with you. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, what you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. And conversely, what you have not done unto the least of this, you have not done unto me. So I want to remind us of what Frederick Douglass, one of the most famed orators of our history and one of the fiercest critics of slavery in our nation said. He said, I would believe the Christianity of Christ but not what I see in our land as passing as Christianity so often. I would believe the Christianity of Christ. So it does behoove us to ask that question, what is the Christianity of Christ? Richard Niebuhr wrote a powerful book called The Kingdom of God in America in the 1930s, and he said in a powerful way that the problem with liberal Christianity then, which I would submit would be applicable to us today, is that it preaches a God without wrath, who brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Christ without a cross. Friends, let us remember the cross of Jesus. That meant that when God came into this world, he sided with the cursed, he sided with the poor, he sided with the losers, he sided with the despised, he sided with the forgotten ones whose innocence would not be defended in courts of law. Let me wrap up. I don't know how you will vote. I don't actually care how you will vote, but I do care that you go there with Jesus. Go with him who knew no sin, but who became sin for us. The giver and creator of life who experienced the snuffing out of his own earthly breath and life. 
and the one in whose name we proclaim justice for all. May he remind you that, that what you have done unto the least among us, you have done unto Jesus. Yet for all that, let us remember Jesus' own words. My kingdom is not of this world. Defending the widows, defending the orphans, defending the powerless, defending the aliens, that is how we follow Jesus in the political arena this very day. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for being our heavenly Father. Thank you for providing us with a daily manna of your truth and your word. Lord, in a mysterious yet majestic way, your own purpose of the incarnation of your own one and only Son was through a birth in a humble, indeed very poor surroundings. No midwife, no good hospital bed, only animals. And you grew up in a very poor and dispossessed land. And all of those things are there to remind us and teach us powerful lessons of with whom you do side. Lord, it is a political season, so a lot of rancors and a lot of people are upset about this and that. But through all of us, Lord, help us to find grace and truth in following Jesus. It is entirely possible that we will be mistaken about our own choices, and yet we know that you, you are the embodiment of truth and grace and mercy. So we cling to you as we come to this table. Help us to be reminded of our life as Mephibosheth, that we are dead dogs and yet be resurrected because of the invitation of Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed. Thank you for that reality as we are about to participate in it now. In your name we pray these things. Amen.